Brian McClanahan Show, episode 266. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. To find all those social media buttons, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. You'll find all those buttons at the top of the page. Give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll, and also brianmclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies or bucks, whatever you got my way, help keep the lights on. You can also go to anchor.fm. You can subscribe to the show there. And, of course, you can also support the show through anchor.fm. And don't forget to go to learn true, learn true, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Great website as well. You can subscribe there and, of course, support the show that way through my affiliate link. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day. And um, I think that there's a misconception about some things with our side of the issues. And when I say our side, if you listen to this podcast, maybe you're not on our side, maybe you're on my side of things, maybe you're getting this for the first time. But I think that there is a perception or a misconception that a lot of what I talk about is just coming out of right field, or if you want to say I'm on the right or left field, if you just want to say it's crazy, whatever you want. That there really isn't a historical antecedent for what I'm discussing. There isn't really a a um, uh, a precedent for think locally, act locally. That this is somehow something that I just made up, right? And it's not that, or people will say, well, this is just Thomas Jefferson being crazy, right? Thomas Jefferson... Uh, was in the minority. Uh, most people didn't think like Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a bad guy. I mean, Thomas Jefferson had slaves. Thomas Jefferson slept with his uh, slaves. Whatever it is, I mean, these are the things that you'll often get. That there's a uh, Jefferson was bad, and Jefferson didn't know what he's talking about. And thank God we had nationalism because nationalism saved the day, and that it was a small faction of people that were promoting this idea, this quote unquote theory of states' rights. It's just, or the compact theory of the Constitution. That Jefferson kind of made that up. Uh, this, this really didn't come from anywhere important. He just made this up to be politically expedient. That Jefferson really didn't care about these things. In reality, he didn't care about these things. All he really cared about was um, uh, his faction winning. And that this idea of factionalism was born in the South. That Southerners were the first to think about factionalism, that, uh, that the Southerners, particularly Virginians, um, made this stuff up because they just weren't controlling the government. So what I want to do in this particular episode is talk about two of the most important letters of the 1790s. And when I say most important letters, they fully explain where this sectional animosity, sectional animosity, comes from. Not from Virginia, no. 
But in these two letters, one from Thomas Jefferson and one from John Taylor of Caroline, the most important Jeffersonian of the 18th and 19th century, it clearly outlines that uh, the spirit of sectionalism, my section over your section, comes not from Virginia, but from New England. And we have to understand that New England nationalism was really nothing more than New England sectionalism. That New England disguised their, their sectionalism behind nationalism. Well, this is good for the country. If we have tariffs, if we have banks, if we have internal improvements, uh, if we promote industry, commerce, finance, this is good for the United States. It's good for everybody. This is, as Henry Clay called it, the American system. Now, of course, Henry Clay from Kentucky, and this is, this is an important development. As the West started siding with New England, that made their version of political economy ascendant. But really, that's just to the benefit of New England. Now, Jefferson as president would, of course, support the embargo, which uh, Virginians would not. They would say it's unconstitutional, or rightfully so. Jefferson was not necessarily anti-nationalism in that Jefferson thought that during the dust-up with Britain before the War of 1812, this would be beneficial to the United States because it would actually encourage domestic industry. Uh, because we weren't going to be trading, we were going to be producing things in-house. So Jefferson wasn't necessarily against these things, but he was against unconstitutional government, at least in principle in the 1790s, to get it. Now we can look at Jefferson 1795 and Jefferson, say, 1807. I mean, they're, they're different Jeffersons. So we can look at Jefferson 1798, which is where we're going to look at Jefferson, um, in this particular case. Uh, so, this exchange between Jefferson and uh, John Taylor is very interesting. It took place in June of 1798. And there's a lot of meat in this particular exchange. Essentially, Jefferson is blaming a lot of the problems of the United States in 1798. And here we are, of course, uh, with the Alien and Sedition Acts. We're going to have the Virginia-Kentucky Resolutions. I mean, all this is, in, all this is in, within this year. So we've got a tremendous amount of problems, at least from Jefferson's perspective, coming from the central authority. And John Taylor of Caroline could feel it too. So Jefferson wrote... To John Taylor on the 4th of June, 1798. And as I said, these are two of the most important letters you will find in the 1790s because it really outlines what's happening here. Wrote from Philadelphia in June of 17, June 4th, 1798. John Taylor had written before and he had talked about secession. Now, John Taylor had already been approached long, several years before this by Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King in the Senate, when John Taylor was in the Senate. And they said, look, this thing isn't working. What would you think about a separation? <clears throat> this was in 1794, four years before John Taylor wrote this to Thomas Jefferson. And John Taylor in 1794 was shocked. They had only had the general government for five years under the Constitution. And he's thinking to himself, well, why are we talking about this now? Shouldn't we have done this earlier? Or, uh, I mean... But he understood in 1794, and New Englanders understood in 1794, at least New England thought in 1794, that the Union was not working for them. 
1794. And that maybe it was time to get out. Now, Taylor writes in 1798, before this letter, that he thinks that perhaps a separation would be desirable. Perhaps a separation of the Union at this point would be beneficial to Virginia and, say, North Carolina. Jefferson responds in this particular letter, and he's not for it, but he understands where this problem is coming from. So he says this, quote, Mr. News showed me your letter on the subject of the patent, which gave me an opportunity of observing what you said as to the effect with you of public proceedings, and that it was not unusual now to estimate the separate mass of Virginia and North Carolina with a view to their separate existence. It is true that we are completely under the saddle of Massachusetts and Connecticut, and they ride us very hard, cruelly insulting our feelings as well as exhausting our strength and substance. Their natural friends, the three other eastern states, join them from a sort of family pride, and they have the art to divide certain other parts of the Union so as to make use of them to govern the whole. Now, stop there. So we're talking about Virginia North Carolina, and he says, you know, the problem is, Taylor's saying maybe Virginia and North Carolina need to be a separate country at this point. We need to set, we need to secede. And Jefferson says, yeah, I mean, the problem is Massachusetts and Connecticut. And then the three other eastern states that ride us very hard, cruelly insulting our feelings. And they do this, he says, under a sort of family pride. Now, by saying that in 1798, it points to the fact that sectionalism was not developed uh, by slavery, by, uh, <laughs> by racism. I mean, this, when, when people talk about these things and say, well, the state's uh, compact there is all about slavery. It's just slavery. It's all about race. Uh, they clearly haven't read that in 1794, King and Ellsworth wanted out, that here in 1798, Jefferson is telling Taylor, and Taylor's saying, look, we got to get out of this union. I mean, this thing is, is bad. He's not saying all the quote-unquote slave states. He's talking about North Carolina, Virginia, which had, he, he didn't bring in South Carolina. He didn't bring in Maryland. He didn't bring in any of that. Georgia. He's talking about two states, North Carolina and Virginia, which he thought had common interests. So sectionalism, this idea of disunion, existed a long time before we got any of these other issues that, of course, are going to be prominent in American politics. And as I've talked about on this podcast several times, the issue of slavery is why slavery, what was really behind that is important. Just by saying slavery, people think of a moral crusade to end the institution. No, no. It was about power. And who could control the government? And of course, Taylor's going to get into that in the next letter. But let me continue with Jefferson here. He says, this is not new. It is the old practice of despots to use a part of the people to keep the rest in order. And those who have once gotten ascendancy and possessed themselves of all the resources of the nation, their revenues and offices, have immense means for retaining the, their advantages. So this is something that had always been there. 
a faction controlling the union for their own interest. But Jefferson is a little optimistic here. He says, but our present situation is not a natural one. The body of our countrymen is substantially Republican through every part of the Union. It was the irresistible influence and popularity of General Washington played off by the cunning of Hamilton, which turned the government over to anti-Republican hands or turned the Republican members chosen by the people into anti-Republicans. He delivered over to his successor in this state And very untoward events since improved with great artifice have produced on the public mind the impression we see. So Hamilton places all of the blame here at the, I'm sorry, Jefferson places all the blame here on the feet of Hamilton. This is why I wrote a book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Right? I mean, people think that, again, I'm coming out of left field for that. No. This was a strong part of America. In fact, the majority of America in 1801 that believed the exact same thing, that Hamilton was problematic, that the Hamiltonian system was dangerous. Jefferson continues, but still I repeat it, this is not the natural state. Time alone to bring around an order of things more correspondent to the sentiments of our constituents But are there not events impending which will do it within a few months? The invasion of England, the public and authentic avowal of sentiments hostile to leading principles of our Constitution, the prospect of a war in which we shall stand alone, land tax, stamp tax, increase of public debt, etc. Be this as it may, in every free and deliberating society, there must, from the nature of man, be opposite parties and violent dissensions and discords. And one of these, for the most part, must prevail over the other for a longer or shorter time. So he's saying all these events which are transpiring here in 1798, all the things which are happening, are going to produce a situation that's going to be beneficial, it's going to be beneficial to republicanism with a lowercase r in the future. Now maybe Jefferson's being a little bit too optimistic here, but you think about what he just said, taxes, unconstitutional government, These are the same things we're talking about in 2019. Why? Because Taylor was right that these things would not correct themselves without some type of fundamental change in the political and legal order. He says, perhaps this party division is necessary to induce each to watch and debate to the people the proceedings of the other. But if on a temporary superiority of the one party, the other is to resort to a secession of the union, no federal government can ever exist. If to rid ourselves of the present rule of Massachusetts and Connecticut, we break the union, will the evil stop there? Suppose the New England states alone cut off. Will our natural event, will our natures be changed? Are we not men still of the South and that in which with all the passions of men, immediately we shall see a Pennsylvania and a Virginia party arise in the residual Confederacy, and the public mind will be distracted with the same party spirit. What a game, too, will the one party have in their hands by eternally threatening the other that unless they do so-and-so, they will join their northern neighbors." If we reduce our union to Virginia and North Carolina, immediately the conflict will be established between the representatives of those two states, 
they will end by breaking into their simple units. Seeing, therefore, that an association of men who will not quarrel with one another is a thing which never yet existed from the greatest confederacy of nations down to a town meeting or a vestry, seeing that we must have somebody to quarrel with, I'd rather keep our New England associates for that purpose than to see our bickerings transferred to others. So Jefferson here is saying, look, secession right now would be bad because eventually you're just going to get all this party factionalism and everything else, and it, breaking apart is just going to produce the same problems. Now, we can say Jefferson was right about this or wrong, but here's Jefferson in 1798 arguing against secession. Now, in 1801, with his inaugural address, you could say that Jefferson was maybe a little more receptive to it, though he did say that he didn't think it was a wise move at that point in his inaugural address. But he was not really opposed to it uh, as, a, as a process that was illegal. I mean, this is where people would say, well, it's illegal. Jefferson never said that. Um. So Jefferson continues, seeing therefore that an association of men, will, okay, I'm, I, I said that already. Um, they are circumscribed with such narrow limits and their population so full that their numbers will ever be the minority. And they are marked like the Jews with the peculiarity of character as to constitute from that circumstance a natural division of our parties. So he's saying that the New Englanders uh, are always going to be the minority because they're peculiar. Their character is strange. A little patience and we shall see the reign of witches pass over. Their spells dissolve, and the people recovering their true sight restore the government to its true principles. It is true that in the meantime, we are suffering deeply in spirit and incurring the horrors of a war and long oppressions of enormous public debt. But who can say what would be the evils of a scission and when and where they would end? Better keep together as we are, haul off from Europe as soon as we can, and from all attachments to any portions of it. And if we feel their power just sufficiently to hoop us together, it will be the happiest situation in which we can exist. The game runs sometimes against us at home. We must have patience till luck turns, and then we shall have an opportunity of winning back the principles we have lost. For this is a game where principles are the stake. Better luck, therefore, to us all, and health and happiness and friendly situations to yourself. So Jefferson thought in a very optimistic way that this would turn around, that New England was such a strange section of people their peculiarity of character, that eventually people would wake up and see these people are nuts and that what we need is just to be patient and this will all turn around in the meantime. And I think that what we get now, because we're seeing some of the same stuff, as, uh, as Clyde Wilson says, about every 50 years, Yankees get very uh, restless and they got to do something. We're seeing this now, not necessarily just from New England, but a New England spirit. I mean, when you look at the left in this, uh, crazy factionalism of the left and their uh, the communists, the socialists, their reform spirit. I mean, this is all just essentially going back to New England rambunctiousness of this period of time. And Jefferson's saying, well, the good Americans will see, see this through. I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. I mean, I don't know if Jefferson would say these things in 2019 or not. But he certainly was much more optimistic than John Taylor of Caroline, who was not necessarily certain it would turn out this way. But before I get into that, I'm going to take a brief break. I'll see you back in just about a minute or two. All right, so we're back. Uh, let's talk about 
Taylor's response to Jefferson, which comes about three weeks later. And uh, this is June 25, 1798. Um, and Taylor responds with a very long letter about his sentiments and what he said to Colonel New. Um, and what he thought we needed to do to correct some of the problems. So he says, this is writing from Caroline, his house, June 25th, 1798, John Taylor to the vice president. He says, the observations contained in yours of the fourth instant upon my letter to Colonel New induce me to say something respecting our political situation. Explanatory of one idea in that letter of which you evidently disapprove. And he's talking about secession. He says, convinced of the caution imposed on you by the Malevolence of party, I have forborne the liberty I am now about to take, but considering your in interrogations as permissive, I will candidly state some of the con considerations which may perhaps have led me into error. He says, the party spirit amongst us is geographical or personal. If geographical, its superiority in either hemisphere will beget the insolence of tyranny and the misery of slavery. A fluctuation of this superiority will enlist revenge as an auxiliary passion, annihilate the chance for human happiness. So if we've got reasons why this party is geographic, if it's New England, they're going to crush us. I mean, he's already saying we've got two se sections. Now, he says, though, if it's personal, if the party spirit is personal, it must arise from interest. This interest proceeds also from some cause. If the evil is in human nature, it may yet admit of alleviation. But if it springs from political encouragement, it is the work of art. And by art may be counteracted. So he gets into what he says about these things. He says that parties sufficiently malignant to destroy the public good are not naturally the issue of every popular government seems to be evinced by the examples of state governments, and particularly by the eminent example of Connecticut, which has for about two centuries enjoyed a complete unanimity under a government, the most democratic of any representative form which ever existed, and that parties may be artificially produced by the scheme of balancing power against power. It is equally evinced by the example of England, is it not possible that our great error has been an imitation of the latter precedent? By counterposing power against power instead of securing to liberty an ascendant over power, whether simple or complex. He says, what are checks and balances but party and faction? So he's looking at the state governments and saying, well, I mean, um, you've got Connecticut which has got this unanimous government. I mean, so if it's personal, but maybe it's England, maybe we're about, maybe our problem was we, we've modeled after England. And he's saying Connecticut is unanimous because of their people are unanimous. Almost he's getting into culture and geography. The people there are the same. We're not Connecticut. So Taylor continues, what are checks and balances but party and faction? If a good form of government too often fails in making bad men good, a bad form of government will too often succeed in making good men bad. Activity can only be bestowed upon these checks and balances by the exhibition of a prize. The prize can only consist of public property. This activity is then as ev an evidence that a constitution has staked its existence upon the existence of faction and party, and that it ensures their existence by purchasing it with the public rights and wealth. 
If in the case of a secession of the Union, party spirit would still be natural, how can it be said that our present situation, the characteristic of which is party spirit, is unnatural? Admitting the former position, nature and not the administration, is accountable for the evil. Admitting the idea of geographical parties is unavoidable in any stated association allows that such an association is geographically unnatural, as would be a union between France and England. Under either admission, a reference to corruption and cupidity as the cause of party is defeated, whence it would result that all complaints and maladministration are groundless. So, um, he's saying if, if the union would create, if that would happen, if we still have factions, would create a union. So then it's not really geographical, it's human nature. Um, he says, admitting the idea of geographical parties as unavoidable in any state association allows then that such an association is geographically unnatural. So we shouldn't have this union. It would be like joining France and England together. In other words, New England and Virginia shouldn't be in the same union. We shouldn't be in the same union. It's unnatural. He says, I am, indeed, I am unable to discuss any natural political state. Not only as a political state in the, is the antithesis to a state of nature, but as all countries and nations seem liable to revolutions in government and even in character from artificial causes. Can even a good administration defeat a constitutional encouragement of wicked propensities, or does a change of men operate any lasting change of government? So, if we just change the men, if we just vote better, is this going to make anything better? Or have we just created a monster that we can't tame, is what Taylor is asking. He's getting to the point that maybe our Constitution is broken because it allows for these things. He says, admitting, as is conceded by a portion of your observations, that individuals have robbed liberty of its ascendancy so as to be able to convert the resources of the nation to the purpose of buying and supporting a party, can any remedy exist except that of depriving individuals of this ascendancy and restoring it not to other individuals but to liberty? What endowed them with it? The form of government. What will deprive them of it? A reformation in that form. A transference of this ascendancy to other individuals will change the tyrant, but not remove the evil. So, yeah, we can we can vote better, but it's not going to remove the the problem here, which is government. Did the British people ever gain by a change of ministry? Saturated are preferable to hungry fly, flies. A southern aristocracy oppressing the northern states would be as detestable as a northern domineering over the southern states. This is what people don't understand about Taylor. He's saying the problem is, I don't want to have the South control the North. I don't want to have the North control the South. So wouldn't it be better to have a situation where this cannot happen? And by saying that, we have a geographical division. It's just going to be the case. We have two different peoples here in North America. What should we do? Well, Taylor's saying we either need to change the entire form of government or secession. Because um, this is just not going to work. And what is the proper time for opposing this ascendancy? Shall it be su suffered to run through its natural course? How many years will bring it to discrepitude? Let England and all personal ascendancies reply. Let the ancient and modern systems of villainage illustrate. Let them prove that such usurpations upon the rights of man are more assailable the more they are matured. <laughs> so he's saying, look, Jefferson, you can say this is going to end, but it's not. 
Show me in history where it's ever gotten better. And I think Taylor is being realistic here. Jefferson's saying, oh, this is going to get better. Just vote better. No, it won't. Taylor's saying, show me in history where this has ever been the case. This is why when we say, when I say things like we need to think locally, act locally, you got to take the you got to take the horse by the reins. You got to grab the bull by the horns and say, look, we've got to do something now because you know what? You never it's never going to get better just by voting better. We got to we got to take the states as as Taylor's going to point out and make them force the center to change. If the mass of our citizens are now Republican, will submission to anti-Republican measures increase that mass? Where are the converts made during the late eventful periods by this policy? Has it not already already lost the advantage of the locality of, pol- of political opinion in some degree? A fact which violently opposes the idea that party spirit is simply the child of nature and evidently refers to its origin in artifice to artifice and management. He's saying, look, if we if we submit to these terrible things now, are we going to have more Republicans because we become nationalists? So think about it in modern terms. Are we going to have more anti-socialists if we become more socialist? I mean, maybe. It depends on how bad it gets. I mean, Jefferson might be right about that. If they abuse power, more people will wake up. But are we going to, are we, should we suffer under that? To preserve, therefore, the purity of the sound members, which now comprise a majority, and by their help to administer medicine to the unsound, seems to be the only mode of restoring the body of the health before the prima vitae are irreparably contaminated. For it is my poor impression both that parties sufficiently malignant to end in political exacerbation are not natural to a Republican government, really dependent on natural will, and also that there is nothing supernatural in the party uh, paroxysm which now exists. If it arises from political causes, the cure must lie in the abolition of those causes. But if it is indeed owing to witchcraft, the spell must be broken by incantations on the part of the Republic. Every common rifleman knows that when his gun is deprived of its propine by a spell, his remedy, remedy is to call in the aid of some conjurer more powerful than him who laid it on. Does not your position that the party game is, is for principles countenance the, this current of ideas? Is it natural for all republics to be divided upon fundamental principles? May not art and corruption produce such a division? Is man's natural propensity for liberty a sufficient curb upon this art and corruption? Monarchy will answer these questions. And let it prove, if it can, that a union in political principles is natural to man under a monarchy, but unnatural under a republic. Of this I must doubt until I see republics organized by annual and rotary offices by breaking the initial, I'm sorry, entail of tax laws and by equal representation as to retain the people a real influence over the government. Constitutional paper vetoes are nothing compared with the solid checks so woven into the form of government as to be incapable of a separation from it. Constitutional paper vetoes are nothing compared with the solid checks so woven into the form of government as to be capable as to be capable of a separation from it. So what Taylor is saying here, look, we have all these checks and balances, but it means nothing unless we have teeth. We got to have teeth in this thing to ensure that this nastiness we're seeing from New England is not going to continue. This is where you get into things like how do we enforce the 10th Amendment? How do we how do we ensure that the government is going to be restrained? How do we ensure that it's not going to pass on constitutional laws? We can't we can't just have constitutional paper vetoes. We got to have something real. 
you will evidently see that the perfection and not the secession of the Union was the object of the letter you refer to, to which end an appreciation of the strength of its soundest parts will probably tend, a probability of which the reigning power is so well convinced that it admits no means tending to its depreciation. If persons as well as principles are threatened, it is not even self-preservation call for some measures. As to these, I have opinions, but unless you should patronize efforts of the kind, I am convinced that they will prove abortive and would, of course, aggravate the evil. For I must candidly declare that I believe the chances against a hope that an individual will in a century unite again unite the principles, powers, and confidence adequate to such an undertaking. So he's saying, look, it's 100 years from now. This isn't going to happen. Right? we got to do something now. 1798, we got to do something now. Those measures ought to lead an amendment of the Constitution. If party and persecution are its offspring, a variety of alterations might apply to the evil. So these are four things that John Taylor of Caroline says, look, if we could do these four things, maybe we can solve this unconstitutional government. He says, first, an extension of the right of suffrage, an abbreviation of the terms of service, rotation in office. If kings find it necessary to change vice-generants to preserve power, let the people profit from the prejudice of princes. Is not merit in office more likely to seduce the people than to deceive kings? The sole object upon which the talents operate, whether they be exerted to usurp under despotism or upon liberty, is the people. So we got to have term limits, is what he's saying here, right? So we, we're going to have more people vote with term limits. A new mode of abrogating the law. Why ought not the mode of repeal to be naturalized within the mode of legislating? The concurrence in favor of existence ought to be the same with that necessary for creation. The existence of a bad law cannot require a less check than its passage, unless experience is more liable to error than speculation, unless mankind are more injured by the creation of bad laws by their, by the, than by their continuance. If each enacting power could discontinue a law, it would beget a new check upon party and faction by rendering advantages obtained under the influence of circumstances by fraud or by surprise more insecure. So we ought to have a we ought to have a way to repeal laws. Uh, you can just go in and repeal them. I mean, there should be a mechanism by doing that. If there's a bad law, we should repeal it. Annual tax laws. Standing armies are one cause of oppressive taxation. We prohibit one cause but tolerate the evil. Armies shall only be temporary, lest they perpetuate oppressive taxes. Yet the taxes may be perpetuated under any other pretext. And this is where he says something that is just so good. He says, Taxes are the subsistence of party. As the maze of marshes contaminate the human body, those of taxes corrupt and purify the bo- putrefy the body politic. Taxation transfers, transfers wealth from a mass to a selection. It destroys the political equality, which alone can save liberty. And yet no constitution, whilst devising checks upon power, is devised checks sufficiently strong upon the means which create it. Government endowed with a right to transfer, bestow, and monopolize wealth in in perpetuity is, in fact, unlimited. It soon becomes a feudal lord over a nation in villainage. Profit to be derived from a combination between the soil and the cultivator constituted the essence of villainage. Power has altered the mode of extorting this profit from regard to the interests of the master and not to the interests of the slave. Ignorant and barbarous power adheres to the ancient system of villainage, Willis, the more artful but not less despotic rulers of man have discovered that they may be turned to greater account by allowing him a nominal liberty as an excitement to labor. 
So he's saying, look, taxes create this party spirit. Taxes create monopolies. Taxes create a situation where one faction can rule over the other. You transfer wealth from one group to the other. In his mind, you're transferring wealth from the agrarian to the commercial sector. Thus, a nation becomes the vassal of a combination cold, pitiless, and insatiable. Thus, a temporary mitigation from individual benevolence with which the federal system, I'm sorry, the feudal system was adorned and a chance of its subversion from its solitary weakness by which it was restrained or ravished from hopeless man. Avarice and ambition entrenched behind perpetual taxation and a disciplined court have become the Lord's paramount of the creation. He says, the limits of a letter forbid the enumeration of the other remedies for the evil of party. The right of the state governments to expound the Constitution might be possibly made, be made the basis of a movement towards its amendment. If this is insufficient, the people and state conventions are incontrovertibly the contracting parties, and possessing the impinging rights may proceed by orderly steps to attain the object. So he's saying, look, the right of the state governments to expound the Constitution might possibly be made the basis of a movement towards this, towards this amendment. So the states have to take a role. This is, again, think locally, act locally. You're not going, Jeffrey, uh, I'm sorry, Taylor understood, you're not going to change this from the center. It has to happen from the bottom up. And maybe state conventions can be called. He con concludes by saying, I doubt whether I ought to apologize for this letter, long as it is, because everyone has a right to explain himself, because your letter seemed to invite me to it. And because your charity will indulge me in the relief afforded by preferring a portion of my political grief towards the great hope for redress. But since government is getting into the habit of peeping into private letters and is manufacturing a law which may even make it criminal to pray to God for better times, I shall be careful not to repeat so dangerous a liberty. I hope it may not be criminal to add a supplication for an individual not, for I will be cautious as a Republican, but as a man." Think about what he just said there. In 1798, he's saying the government's snooping into letters and it might be dangerous to pray to God for better times. This is 1798. Have we gotten better? Has not Taylor been vindicated in this in saying that things are really bad and are they ever going to get any better unless we come up with some constitutional remedy now? A hundred years from now, 1898, isn't going to happen. And it didn't happen. Maybe Jefferson's too optimistic and Taylor is spot on. So this exchange between these two men is one of the greatest exchanges of the 1790s. Because in Jefferson, you see, well, just vote better. Things will get better. It might be bad for a while, but things will get better because, you know, independence is not going to produce... But then Taylor responds, yeah, I mean, look, you're you're wrong about this. Voting better isn't going to get us anything. How long are we going to suffer? And what has to be the remedy? But think locally and acting locally. He even says Connecticut's got good government because they're Connecticut and they're all unanimous. But you can't put incompatible things together, which is Connecticut and Virginia. It isn't going to happen. And we need to figure out how to make this not happen. We don't need the North ruling the South. and We don't need the South ruling the North. Let's come up with a way to make this better. And the real solution, as Taylor points out, there's some, some political solutions, but really it comes down to federalism and allowing these separate entities to essentially govern themselves without the abuse of power from the center. And you got to do it by having checks on that abuse of power of the center. So there you go. The historical antecedents of think locally, act locally, 
I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan. (laughs) 